Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everybody and uh, welcome to today's live stream. We'll be uh, taking questions pretty much right from the top and trying to get to as many as possible today. So as these come in, go ahead and start putting them in the chat window and we'll get started as soon as those pop in. While we're waiting for those to show up, we do have a slightly modified schedule. We still have our normal weekly episodes for April, but uh, we are going to have the first Clock Tech bonus episode this upcoming Sunday. <clears throat> Not this Sunday, but the next one. So that we've got, uh, was it, Techno Primitivism this upcoming Thursday, and then we'll have Clock Tech on Anti-Gravity that Sunday. And then we'll go back to the normal schedule, which will be Future Pets on April 11th. And then it's uh, Giant Robots on uh, April 18th. I still can't believe I talked in that episode. All right. So make sure to start getting your questions in. And as a heads up, when you're putting the questions in, the uh, more concise those are, the more uh, well-spelled they are, the more likely they are to get to me because we don't really have time to uh, recopy or interpret them as we go. All right. Uh, so... We always have this bit of a lag while people put questions in. What else is going on for the week while we're waiting? Let's see. Ah, question. Selena asks, you said in one of your episodes that data has no mass. Can you talk about that more? Um, you know, with a lot of abstract concepts, we would say whether or not they're real or not doesn't necessarily mean they have mass. Even in the sense like a photon doesn't have mass, but uh, arguably has uh, rest energy and could be viewed as having relativistic mass. Um <clears throat> I don't think an abstract concept would really be very likely to have mass, but at the same time, you could have a minimum amount that you could have to store it on. For instance, if your minimum is an atom, you really couldn't go beneath that amount of mass. And I usually tend to assume you couldn't store it on less than that. Though there are some theories that around like the edge of a black hole, the minimum surface area of the event horizon, a Planck area, which is many trillions of trillions of trillions of times smaller than an atom. Uh, that that could be your minimum bit size, but that doesn't necessarily imply any mass, but there should be an energy associated these things and it probably would be something of the Planck scale. Robbie Rose asks, are all particles created in the Big Bang entangled with each other? No, I can't think of any reason why they would be. Um, I mean, that might be an interesting theory if that was the case, but if we're talking about entanglement, that's a little bit more complex than things can become disentangled too. Uh, so there'd be no reason to think they were entangled to begin with, and they certainly wouldn't be now. Um, interesting concept, though, if you could set something like that off. But entangling large quantities of particles, and we're going to be talking about quantum computers with, uh, well, it's not an episode, actually, it's with CBS News uh, sometime in the next month or so. Um, with those in general, I wouldn't see these why they'd be entangled. Next question is, why can't we just take Venus's atmosphere and move it to Mars? Um... There's no reason why we couldn't, except that it actually is a lot more atmosphere than, than you would need for Venus. I'm trying to remember the exact composition, but I believe Venus is like 97% carbon dioxide, 3% nitrogen, unless I have those backwards. Um, and of course, there's already plenty of carbon dioxide on Mars, relatively speaking, but it is short of nitrogen. So places like Titan and Venus are really very attractive to us for getting more nitrogen to Mars. But there's way more air on Venus than there is on Earth, and Mars is smaller than Earth, so you really wouldn't want to transfer all that anyway. 
as to whether or not you can do that, we, you know, we did talk about that in Colonizing Venus, I think, as well as for Titan about how they might export atmosphere. So you certainly could do it, but I wouldn't want to take uh, all of it. Adam asks, how likely is it that a neutron star can be fired in our direction and how close would it need to be to ruin our solar system? Hmm. You would see somebody shooting a neutron star a long time off and that is moving a star, even if it's moving at a, uh, you know, 10% of light speed, which require huge amounts of energy, like the equivalent of an entire sun being expended for that. You are not going to make that a stealthy approach. People would see it coming centuries off. As to how fast it would need to be uh, going or how close it would need to be going to get to us and cause problems, um, any anything that gets into the outer solar system, and I don't even mean like Jupiter or Saturn area, more like, you know, Kuiper Belt or Cloud, it's going to cause some perturbation. But it's when it crosses the orbit of a planet that it causes the most problems. So one that basically goes across where Earth is orbiting at inside that range is going to perturb us a lot more than one that's going just outside that. Um if it got that close, we'd have a bad day um, and probably our last day. Uh, if it was just passing by the outer system, it, it depends on what you mean by outer system. In all probability, that we have actually had some very close runs with stars as these things go over the course of all its history. Um, next question, YT Math asks, what is the possibility of using ice to shield interplanetary, exoplanetary from micrometeorites and hard radiation? Um, Nine meters of water reduces radiation to sea level amounts. I'm not too clear what you mean that by that, but uh, water will block it. I assume you mean that nine levels, nine meters of water would act as a very good shield. Um, you can certainly use ice to shield yourself, and I think that's been suggested on many occasions. Not because it's a really great radiation barrier, but because it's really cheap. It's everywhere, and uh, water is one of those things we like to bring with us for these trips. Not so much to drink, but to make air off of, to use the fuel, that sort of thing. Hydrogen's a pretty good one for shielding, and oxygen's just handy to have around, but the thing is, whenever we talk about a natural object, and the same comes up when people say things like, well, why don't we hollow out an asteroid and use that as a spaceship, and for that matter, we were talking about with planet ships a few days ago, um, when you're trying to make a relatively small ship, you really don't want to use anything natural, uh, even in the case of a planet ship, that's really more about making a ship big enough to have enough gravity for its own air and things like that in uh, so it's not leaking mass over millions and millions of years of travel. Um, almost never want to use a natural path when you want to. Ice is a good shield, but then so would be tanks full of uh, um, hydrogen, condensed hydrogen that were also uh, made out of lead or uranium or any number of other materials that are good cross-sections for radiation. But you certainly could use ice for that form. <clears throat> Flo Heisler asks, have you ever done anything about time travel? Uh, I'm new here. We have a really old episode on time travel. I think it was the second episode of the FTL series. Um, the FTL series was the third or fourth series we did on the channel. We did four episodes of that. And I've always wanted to redo those because that was early season two. And um, they are much faster, very hard to understand. And I don't really like to redo episodes unless we're expanding on the concept a bit. But we did do an episode on time travel and tachyons. Early February 2016, I want to say. Um, and uh, I don't really recommend it to people because it's not high quality, but it does cover the topic. Um, and of course, we probably will redo almost every episode from season one or two if we haven't already redone them at some point in the next couple of years. Usually, I like to expand on a topic rather than just repeat it, though. Um, Stephen asks, is it possible to ignite Jupiter into a second star like in that Stargate episode? 
I actually don't remember a Stargate episode where they did that, but I mean, there's that classic thing from um, 2010. No, yeah, uh, 2010, the sequel to 2001, uh, A Space Odyssey, um, where they do ignite the sun, uh, the Jupiter that is into a new sun. You could presumably make something artificial that was the mass of, a, of Jupiter and actually get to burn, but you're not going to get that from a natural fusion process. It's just not massive enough for that. Um, it needs to be way more massive. It's not just a little bit. And I think I was reading, again, uh, The Saga of Seven Sons. It's a book by Kevin J. Anderson, a series by Kevin J. Anderson. They start off with something called The Clickers Torch, where they talk about dumping a neutron star into a gas giant to ignite it. And so that that will work, of course. You would uh, you would cause a supernova, but um, well, maybe just a nova. But the issue is that that neutron star that they're acting as though it's a minor addition is going to outmass that uh, that Jovian by a factor of around a hundred. It's not really ideal for that sort of purpose. You might just basically adding gas at that point in time uh, to a neutron star, not uh, not making the Jovian actually turn to a sun itself. All right. <clears throat> Hydrogen cyanide, oh, so one, missed one. Zachary Wilson asks, I've seen a lot of headlines about the zoo hypothesis as an explanation as to why we haven't met aliens. Are you aware of any new information on this subject that explains these recent headlines? Um, I'm not going to make any negative commentary about, typically speaking, you can get an article on the Fermi paradox anytime somebody makes something interesting that implies it might be solved. Um, I don't know if that's the case here. I think I did see a couple extra articles on zoo hypothesis recently though. Generally speaking, these don't really deal with the issue in any sort of new way. It's just some new piece of physical evidence that pertains to the topic. It just doesn't alter the equation at all. Um, you can find a million natural looking objects that are a bit anomalous, unless you can find an actual pattern to indicate they're artificial. It doesn't really talk to you about it. The zoo hypothesis, um, I don't think we've actually done an episode specifically on the zoo hypothesis, but smug aliens was kind of covering from the other direction why that's not really a good approach. Um, and I've just, I've never seen anything that makes it a viable approach. If I was specifically trying to quarantine a civilization that way, um, I would globe them up and probably move their home planet back to my own system where I could protect it and just fake their sky or do something else like digitize them and put them in a virtual world that looks exactly like theirs. If that was my approach for quarantining them, I think that's a bit of an ethical nightmare, but it's a lot more effective than just trying to you know, leave a planet untouched for millions of years. Okay, Hydrogen Cyanide asks, do you support colonizing Mars or building your neo cylinders since Martian gravity could render descents of colonists unable to live on Earth? I would be surprised if it actually did. I mean, when you're talking about a genetic change to people, that's that takes a long time. And, you know, genetic engineering is kind of bringing classic evolution to an end. Uh, even for folks who would avoid using that themselves, you're not really... Um, you're not really removing them from that evolutionary pool somehow because they're not doing it themselves. Everybody else around them is still doing it. All the things they were spying to as effects are still being affected by all that genetic engineering technology nearby. Um, bit of a tangent there. The thing is that you wouldn't really have people mutating into something that couldn't live under Earth gravity without thousands of years of uh, you know slow mutation. Probably many tens of thousands of years. Um, as to Livian Mars itself, it might turn out that we don't actually need any artificial gravity to work there. That is one of the episodes we're going to be looking at, obviously, again in a week and a half, sorry, a week from now. Um, and um, I really don't think that you'd want to do that unless you were sure that was enough gravity for our ecosystem. It's not really about people, it'd be about the ecosystem they're around. 
you're terraforming a planet because you want to make a second planet, not a place where people specifically live. You just want to do a specific place where them live, build an O'Neill cylinder. And I do think that would be where the majority of people would live, assuming that we're talking about biological people. Alright, um, thank you Chinchilla Dave. Uh, Doc Marshall asks, if you were to ship things like atmosphere or liquid, which would be easier for transport, manned, unmanned, or minimally manned? For mass transport, um, you're doing everything really slow because you don't want to waste energy, so you could put people on board there, whereas like a probe you might want a really high acceleration rate. Um, and so I don't see why you wouldn't have those manned if you needed them. Um, the question is, do you need them? And uh, the answer that I usually give on this is uh, it just depends on whether or not there's something there that would require intelligence to fix. Because at that point, you have a manned ship. It doesn't matter if they're people or not in the classic human sense. If you put an AI on board something like, you know, Commander Data um, from Star Trek, that's now a manned vessel. Um, by any halfway sane definition we can use for the term. So if there's an intelligence on there, it's manned. And if there's not, then because you don't need that, then it's unmanned. And with freighting of just large quantities of mass, you probably don't need it, but I think you'd probably tend to do it anyway, just because it helps you cover down some of your bases. Stormlin asks, hey Isaac, can you and John Michael Godier make a duo episode? I'm sure John and I would do something again at some point. It's only been, I think, four or five months since last time we did a collab though, so um, I don't know what his schedule looks like, but John's always a lot of fun to work with. Um, the next collab we have up, and it's not actually for a set date yet, we'll be finally getting around to looking at Boltzmann brains. Um, probably not for at least a month and a half or a little bit longer, and that will be with uh, Jade from Up and Adam. So, um, but uh, I'm, you know, if John's around and wants to do another video, I'm always glad to work with him on these things. He's just a lot of fun to work with. Jace asks, I know you have generally have a positive outlook on the future. But what futuristic technologies do you view as the most likely to turn dystopian in human hands? Um, I never really think of myself as having a positive attitude on the future, more of a sort of pragmatic realism. It's just that, you know, if you look at the 20th century or the 24th century, life is just so much better from this kind of progress of knowledge, not just technology, but knowledge. Um, and, you know, this increasingly long lifespans and greater prosperity allows people a lot more time to think about issues and not really have to deal with desperate situations and rationalize why it was okay to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and that, I guess you can call that a positive outlook, that I think that as we acquire more knowledge and prosperity and technology, we all have a more happier life, but um, that certainly isn't dystopian. As to what technologies could turn dystopian, um, anything having to do with mind control, obviously, brainwashing, um, Anything that just makes people really happy. There was um, one of the audience, uh, I can't remember what, he was, what his field was off the top of my head, actually. But he was, his thesis he was working on was uh, a foamy, well, not his thesis, a paper he was working on with his advisor was a, uh, a foamy paradox solution had to do with reward hacking. I won't talk about that too much, but reward hacking as a concept is where you, you know, would trigger someone to just be happy. And there's a kind of this loose concept um, that... If I make somebody happier um, by just pushing a button on them, that, that means they are always going to prefer that over working towards something that would make them happier or make them laugh. If you can just push a button instead of actually having to do things that would create that reward, that's reward hacking. And you tend to expect a lot of people would tend to use that in the same way people use drugs, so that um, or euphoric drugs anyway, um, so that you might end up having a civilization that was doing that, what we call a post-discontent society on the channel to distinguish it from a post-scarcity society. One way or people might be living in absolute misery and dejection, but they're very happy. Uh, um, 
speed these up a little bit. Uh, Sunrise Bedtime Ass, we'll be doing another episode on the non-sequitur show. Uh, probably down the road. I, I, I generally try to avoid collabing or working with folks too often lest it lose the you know freshness of working with them. Um, but I, I did enjoy doing them. We've been on there twice now and, and they're, they're really fun to chat with. Alright. Um, question from Colors99. Would Kessler Syndrome be a solution to the Fermi Paradox? Uh, that's faintly rewarded. Um, no. No. Never would that be a one for it. Um, there are ways to clear, uh, to clear debris away from a planet. Um, and it does naturally go away on its own. Um, and uh, we did talk about that in orbital infrastructure. I want to say episode 12 of the Upward Bound series. And that gives, goes more into details about that, but I would never consider that to be a, uh, at least for a K1 civilization, Kessler Syndrome shouldn't be a threat. A bit more of an issue for a K2 civilization in some regards, though. Uh, Jeremy Scott asks, do you think the U.S. is capable of handing the economic transition to full automation without riots, rebellions, and massive poverty for at least a period of time? Um, and I would say, I'm not really sure how to answer a question like that civilizations have to deal with technological disruption on a regular basis. If they don't, then that indicates there's a flaw of weakness in that civilization. Um, I am American. I would like to think that we easily could. I think most civilizations could handle that. Does not mean they handle it well. Does not mean that even if they handle it well, it doesn't cause problems. But, you know, forgetting about which country one's from for the moment, people are people. We're adaptable. You know, we, uh, we are basically built on change, especially these last couple of centuries. This is not exactly new to us. This is not uh, something we can't handle. And I think the idea that people would go into, you know, riots and rebellions uh, because we suddenly have technology that improves everyone's overall net living standard has never struck me as terribly plausible. This does not mean that a lot of people might not, uh, you know, have some serious issues, though, of course, with, uh, you know, job loss, potentially. That's something we've been dealing with for a long time. And in fact... That is the topic of this week's episode, so we'll save that for Thursday. Uh, I also was asked, what do we think of the Forever War by Joe Haldeman? Have you read it? If so, what's your opinion? Haven't read it in a long time, but it is a classic for a reason. I'm trying to remember more of the details, and I haven't read any of the sequels, but um, I remember liking it. I can't go into too many more thoughts on it at the moment, though. Uh, Paul Paulson asks, what's the first rule of warfare again? Uh, cheat here and say the first rule of warfare is not to ask without the first rule of warfare. <laughs> uh, John Ansel asks, what do all the research, uh, sorry, who does all the research to prep you for your excellent videos? I do, um, where that's needed. There are a lot of people who work with the channel um, who very much help out with that though. Typically speaking, um, when we go to make an episode, uh, we get a topic in mind and we do what's called a, we just do a brainstorm session on our Discord server. Um, amongst the various editors and you know, artists and things that work with the channel and whoever's available at the time. And that's just a free for all. Um, and uh, anytime somebody suggests a good idea for it, that's what we do. But we never do an episode unless I'm pretty confident that I could do it um, from existing material. You know, So I don't like to do anything because I don't know if it's going to be a good episode otherwise. If I know there's enough material there, then I'm willing to do it. Anything that's added on that point, though, makes it better. And we've actually had some episodes get rewritten by scratch just because of ideas that came during the brainstorms and large segments of the episodes are often written or rewritten by a lot of our editors um and uh, you know i actually have a good question for today because i, I kind of want to introduce some of you guys to more of the folks who make up the team here um <clears throat> christopher agapeo asks how do you think we will govern in the future considering that an interplanetary democracy does not seem to be practical 
you could do an interplanetary democracy. It's just you wouldn't want to try to do an interstellar one. Um, even then, it kind of depends on on the level of um, you know hierarchy that you have going on there. If you look at the United States, just uh, an example most be familiar with. In the early days of the country, um, most of those states would need weeks to just to send a message back and forth to each other that you know get a response from them, and uh, you know they could easily have had those some of those territories where it'd be months, and you weren't too sure what would happen. Uh, so you could actually have interplanetary ones all the way out to the outer cloud with days of light lag, and it still wouldn't be an issue uh, to run that compared to how we ran the early democracies on this planet. So I do think that is viable. Once you get out past that level, not so much. You'd have to be much more interdependent to the point that I don't think most people would actually see a need for a um, more federal level of things between solar systems. I think with most interstellar you know, federations, as you would, it would probably be almost entirely controlled at the local system level or beneath that. Uh, and everything else would probably be like treaties or agreements on what language or units of standards or what things are in terms of a technological ban or just not allowed, you know, no making, uh, you know, sentient killing machines, for instance. Uh, <clears throat> in the distant future, when the CMB is stretched to invisibility, could it be detected by relativistic acceleration of a telescope? Um, Unruh effect. Um, that's sufficiently complicated that I'm going to save that for another time because we do actually talk about that in Black Warships a bit. Uh, Pepsi Atlas asks, do you think we should change people to their environment or change the environment to suit humans? Um, bioforming versus terraforming. Terraforming, you make the planet Earth-like uh, for humans to live on and for all the critters. Bioforming, you make us more like that planet. I think that in almost every case you're going to terraform with a little bit of bioforming, either natural or otherwise. People always adapt to their environment. Uh, most of the time though a planet is either going to be completely unlivable, so you couldn't even use biology uh, to adapt to there. You, know, you can't just have things living on Mars like us, it's not going to work. Um, but there will often be occasions where you could do maybe a little bit of a change. Uh, Andrews asks, what's your opinion of Kurzweil's predictions? I tried to comment on those too much. Obviously, a lot of those have turned out to be correct or wrong, and you can look at the track record on those yourselves. Um, and uh, I would just say, uh, since I'm often in a position to do that myself, and we did that asthma video at the end of last year about his predictions, usually you have general ideas in mind that are based off a of logical extrapolation of technologies. Try to put a date to that, though. You know, We always on the channel will say 10 years after X technology comes into play. Because we can kind of project a timeline from when this happens. But we can't say this is going to happen in the next 20 years. And um, you, you're often kind of push to put a date on it, though, I think, when people are making these lists. That's one of the reasons why I avoid doing them. But uh, I've never seen that much on his list that I would disagree about it happening just when. Uh, thank you, Big Muppet. And uh, Chinchilla Dave also asks, are you excited for the Dune remake? I love Dune. Um, I was actually listening to Heretics Dune yesterday. Um, I've actually liked all the Dune films. I really liked the Dune 83 version. I'd have loved to have seen the original one by the name whose na guy whose name I can never pronounce. Jordan, Jordan. There was a previous version of the film. I think everyone probably knows who I'm referring to if they're familiar with it though because I can't pronounce his name. Uh, I did like the miniseries they did on Sci-Fi Channel too. Uh, uh, we're going to go to break real quick and I'm going to get caught up on the questions hopefully after that. So thank you for joining us and stand by. We always do intermissions during the live stream so I can catch my breath and refill my coffee, and I thought we'd start filling those by introducing you to some of the SFIA crew who helped make this channel what it is today. 
There's not an episode on this channel that doesn't result from a lot of folks besides me working on them, and none of the social media outlets would exist without their work, and I thought it past time everybody gets to meet them. Hey there, I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm a script editor as well as an administrator for our Facebook group. With the help of fellow admins, the moderators, as well as our members, we've managed to put together a fairly polite and intelligent community for discussing the ideas talked about on this channel. If you like Isaac's content and wish to continue the conversation, then you should head on over to our Facebook group. You can find the link to it in the description of every video. There, you'll be able to ask questions and discuss ideas with Isaac, myself, and our 20,000 other members. In order to maintain the civility of our community, we do discourage the discussion of certain controversial topics like politics or religion. However, because these are still important topics, we do have a sister group known as Futurism and Society, where you can discuss some of those things, though courtesy still expected there too. Anyways, I hope to see you there. In the meantime, welcome back, Isaac. Okay, and we're back, and I still haven't figured out how to actually mute my microphone with my software here. I think I need to get one of the ones that's got a button on it. Um, incidentally, uh, that Matt Campbell you just heard from is one of the longest members here with the channel. He helped set up the original Facebook. Um, I don't think anyone quite predates Jacob Greigel, who's our cover artist, but uh, we started assembling a team not long after that, and uh, Matt's been around almost since the beginning. So, um, Also, the one who writes an awful lot of our one-liners that we open episodes up with. All right, back to the questions. Um, <clears throat> thank you, the author. Um, Judy Pinto asks, has there been any significant update on Tabby Star? What are your thoughts on it? Well, Tabby, actually, we were talking about John Michael Gaudier earlier. Um, if you're looking for good updates, always check out John's channel or Paul Gilstritz and Tari Dreams. They keep very up to date on that issue. And um, I haven't seen anything to indicate to me that there's much unnatural going on there. That's changed my opinion that we had back in the uh, Award for Me Paradox Tabby Star episode. Um, the author asks, what video topic have you done that has given you the most existential crisis? Thinking of the time scale at the end of time, the Fermi Paradox. Um, you know, almost all of these things that we talk about in the existential crisis series are things I thought of years and years ago, so I've already kind of passed through concerns about them. The one I usually have that's the standing one, uh, and it does relate to the Fermi Paradox, is always this kind of background fear that uh, things like consciousness, that we regard as consciousness, um, and this kind of gets looked at a bit in um, Peter Watts' novel Blindside, might be a kind of a type of insanity, and so it doesn't really develop too often and uh, has like a limited spectrum. Like if you get too much smarter, you can't actually be conscious anymore. Uh, we don't have much evidence to support that yet, but it's kind of those nagging things that worries me occasionally. Free Saxon asks, do you think that transhumanism is inevitable? Are they already, in a way, preparing us for that? Um... I don't know if I'd say transhumanism specifically is inevitable, but again, people change and adapt and we, we improve. And I, I tend not to like a lot of the transhumanist approach to discussing this topic with other people because it implies that you're doing something very different, something very, um, I, I hate to say unnatural, but uh, something without precedent in our society. Well, it's, it's not without precedent. We've been improving ourselves when we can in any number of ways for a long time. Some of those improvements um, come at costs that probably aren't worth paying. Some of them are ones where you're losing something in the process, and it's going to depend a lot on the individual, which ones that you know are going to work out for us based on the technology and the culture at the time. And in terms of being inevitable, I guess it just depends on how you define it. 
James Dio asks, would you be interested in a in being part of a Midwest sci-fi convention? I would probably be willing to attend a convention again one of these days. I haven't been to one in a long time, but I really wouldn't want to speak at one of those at this time. Um, I'll be speaking at the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh in early June, and it's been a, a, quite a while since I've done a, a public talk. Uh, and if I if that feels like fun, something I want to do more of, then I might do more things like that. But for the moment, I really prefer to do things like this than than go to see audiences. I'm not a big fan of travel or, or actually being in crowds. Skarmos asks, do you think the importance of global companies in the development of new technologies will increase in the future? And do you think they could become more important than countries? Um, we've gone through a number of phases. A lot of what we think of as a modern nation is, is a very different concept than, for instance, of feudal occasions or uh, back during uh, a lot of the old empires that we think of as you know huge empires. They were really more like a city-state that had a lot of other city-states that it was in charge of. And, um, you know, things change in terms of how we govern things at, a, at a, above the tribe level. Um, but it kind of depends on how you're defining a government, for instance, as a, or a country as opposed to a corporation. Um, and I, I could see things doing that. You know, they, I've, I've seen some anarchist models where you'd have any number of companies that provided government services that were... You know, basically uh, engaged in ways. Trying to remember the term for that. Um, I was about to say mutually assured destruction. I think it's mutually assured benefit. Um, so I could see that happening, but I don't see any particular reason why we progress to that specific thing, or why it'd be a good or a bad thing per se. It always depends on how you execute the government. Um, Punk Privateer asks, "Do you believe it is possible to artificially create a universe or dimension similar to the warp from 40k? I hope not. If it's similar to the one from 40k." Um, so if you've ever seen the movie Event Horizon, if you're not familiar with 40K, but have seen that film, um, it's like a prequel to the series. The warp there is full of evil demons. Um, and yet, weirdly, Warhammer 40K is probably one of the most scientifically accurate visions of the future in many regards. It's strange. Um, they get many things right uh, that other things miss. That happens a lot, I think, with satire, though. Um, you know, like uh, Discord by Terry Pratchett or Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker series often or Futurama, uh, or the Orville for that matter, often nail certain things on the head very accurately, in my opinion, compared to what we often see in sci-fi. I don't know how we go about creating a universal dimension like that. We'll probably talk about something like that in a Clock Tech episode at some point, but if you could do it, uh, I would hope it would not be like the one from 40K. Astrid Wells, oh sorry, Victor asks, do you think it's our duty to see the universe with life if we discover life is unique to Earth and did not, in fact, develop anywhere else? Duty, no. Um... I don't like when we say you have to do something like that. I think we would. I'd be glad to do that. Um, but I don't think we have any particular duty to do that any more than we have a duty to run around uplifting species on other planets if we find out we're the only intelligent life. We might do that, but I don't think we have an obligation to. <clears throat> it's only hope that we would, though. Um, colonize until we land into something else intelligent. Astrid Wells asks, why are you apparently so against planetary habitation? I'm not against it at all. Um, if it was easier to terraform a planet than to create an equal number of cylinder habitats, then I would say you do that first. What happens afterwards, though, is that you now have a very large amount of mass devoted to um, a relatively small amount of living area compared to what a cylinder habitat would give you. There are ways around that. In fact, that's the topic of the Matrioska Awards episode that we're having at the uh, end of April. Is it the end of... Yeah, April 25th episode, Matrioska Awards. We'll look at a walk around where you might use plants more. 
Because once you've actually terraformed and colonized a planet, you are very unlikely to disassemble it. And you probably don't need the matter anyway because there's you know, plants, habitable plants that would be ideal Earth-like ones are only going to be a very tiny percentage of mass, even if we limit that mass to things besides hydrogen and helium. Um, but I think that people, it's not so much that I'm against planetary habitation or terraforming, it's that I think people overemphasize its role in the future by simply assuming that's the only place you can live other than a few space stations. Thiago asks, any plans to make a video about how space warfare will look in the near future before we are able to leave the solar system? Um, see the interplanetary warfare episode, that one does take a more near-term look at it. Um, we'll probably revisit that topic, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Um, thank you, Nazmuth. Uh, ask a question, long-range war is problematic. Do you think we would eventually agree to hold wars on X and Y wards and actually honor the results? Um, you know, we were talking about 40k a moment ago, um, in one of the books that starts a series of uh, Horus Rising, they, they have a military leader there who's talking to uh, a remembrance or a, basically a, a reporter, if you would, um, about some of the weirdest species they'd met. And one of those was a very warlike species uh, that uh, they are going to war with and um, they wouldn't fight them in a lot of the places they're at. They eventually realized they were always congregating these specific locations on the planet. And on their, uh, on their war, their culture, they had been so devastated by war that they had areas they set aside to agree to only fight there. And they say, well, that's a good idea. And that's been suggested in many sci-fi things. And the very next line is, and that was so handy when we got them all to assemble there and we bombed the place. So <laughs> it's probably not going to be a good idea because you really have to trust the other side to do that. Now, if you have a third party refereeing, that can change things a bit. And you probably always would. I don't think you'd ever have two, you know, an occasion where you just had two major powers and nobody else in the galaxy who might intercede. Abhishek Galgas, would you be able to do an episode about the possibility of existence of souls and higher beings and the nature of consciousness? I'm always happy to talk about consciousness, but um, I try to avoid anything that would uh, hedge too much on spirituality or religion. And again, there's definitely a, a lot of things in science to be discussed of in terms of that. Certainly in the future, it's a, a topic that's valid for discussion. We avoid it because, one, it tends to cause flame wars. Two, I don't like to go down that road because I'm not an expert on that anyway. And I don't like when you know experts on a given topic start talking too much outside their own area in the format of, of you know, I'm an expert, let me tell you my opinions on these things that are true. Now let me tell you something else that I don't really know much about myself. And so that would be the third reason. I don't think I personally would have anything to offer on that topic that would be new to people. As to consciousness, uh, that's always a topic we can discuss. In fact, we probably will discuss it in that upcoming Boltzmann Brains episode again. <clears throat> King Alfred Shieldwell asks, what are your thoughts on time travelers already pulling strings in the present day? No. The usual reason why would be there's no motivation for them to produce the the setup that we have. Whenever you're looking at any of these kind of things that require alien or you know future um, intervention with us, somebody who is manipulating things to their own advantage, you have to ask why does the current situation look like it does? Because it implies they're succeeding at whatever they're doing. So what was the motivation to do it? And this is even more you know important with something like time travel because if an alien arrives, um, they have to work with a situation that already exists when they show up. A time traveler by destination, by definition, does not have to do that. They can go right back to what it is. And uh, with time travel in general, you always have to ask, you know, why aren't they instead of manipulating us currently? 
why aren't they jumping back to when the planet first started, first formed, and was reasonably habitable and terraforming that? Um, Pepsi Atlas asks, are you named after a particular Isaac? No, I'm named after two of them. Um, I was named after Isaac Newton and Isaac Asimov for my first name. My middle name, Albert, is for uh, Einstein, so parents wanted a physicist, I suppose. Uh, uh, I guess they got that. Um, but uh, not necessarily a bad thing, though. I am actually quite happy with that. So, uh, It's Don Ramon de Vogo asks, How small do you think human-level intelligent creatures could evolve, and how much smaller could they, could they be with tech? If they're using our brain architecture, specifically neurons, uh, the, the same kind that we have, um, I couldn't see them getting much smaller than something cat or maybe rat-sized, and even that might be a push. Brains use a lot of material, but that's all brains. Something that evolved with a different setup for exchanging signals, say an intelligent algae, might be able to get away with something much smaller than us. Um, so we're just, you know, on Earth, I wouldn't see us ever evolving anything much smaller than us, the cat at most. Um, in fact, I would tend to think humans about as small as you can go. On another planet, though, it just depends on, on how the architecture of their brains evolved. Um, Follow-up question from Hodor. Is there an ideal size for intelligent life? Would human beings being smaller or larger give advantages or disadvantages similar to cell volume limitations? Kind of the same answer on that one. Um, the smaller you are, in many ways, the better. And there are advantages being bigger, of course, too. But if you're using the kind of basic biological architecture we use here on Earth, um, you're not going to be able to get too much bigger or too much smaller than we are. Um, anything outside about an order of magnitude of us is probably not viable, but that's with all biology. And, um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions going into just making the assumption they, they use the same methods for muscles or bone or neurons that we do. Maxwell Vess asks, what has been one of the most mechanically interesting methods of faster than light travel you've seen in fiction? Hmm. Uh, David Webber um, from the uh, Honor Harrington series, which is called The Honor Force. Uh, first book is On Basilisk Station. Um, the gravity waves they use there to sail around and the fact they keep everything, at least early on in the series, limited to light speed, except for when you're in uh, hyperspace. Um, I thought that was very interesting from a storytelling point of view and allowed uh, some very good uh, forecasting of uh, military naval methods, for instance. They switch from having ships that fight in a line, the old ship of line thing, to having uh, ships of the wall, a two-dimensional one. Uh, uh, we are getting asked, what will happen with Saturn and Uranus? It would be cool to have an Outward Bound episode about it. Uh, the Titan episode was the colonizing Saturn episode. Um, and then to look at gas giants specifically was more what we were doing in Jupiter and then in colonizing Neptune. Uh, the colonizing Neptune episode was the colonizing Uranus episode. There's no reason to revisit the series. Um, we don't just do an episode for every single one of those in, in there, you know, that we might do one on colonizing Pluto because there's going to be a lot of things like that, but, uh, basically it's by type of planet and, uh, Uranus and Neptune aren't that dissimilar. Um, and you can all guess why we picked Neptune instead of Uranus. Uh, Viltor asks, in how much time do you think we will have immortality? Never. Uh, but in terms of life extension or biological immortality in the sense that you don't age, I think that's inside this century. I, I really do think we'll hit that or the escape velocity for that in this century. I suspect we'll have a lot more problems doing protracted lives um, than just fixing the fourth century thing. You'll start coming across other things like brain not being designed for many, many centuries of storage, that kind of thing. 
Um, but once you hit that first marker, you know it's possible and you're going to keep going after it and you've got more time to do it. Um, Colors99 asks, would you think that our consciousness would expand with the ability to travel on a large scale like interstellar or intergalactic? Um, like would our, would our outlook on life change? I mean, it's anytime you open up a new door to humanity, you're going to have an effect how we look at the universe. Um, I would hope in a positive way, it's always good for us to be thinking more about you know, what our place in the universe is and what our place with each other is, but that's probably about the extent of it. Uh, the author asks, what does your family think of your YouTube career? Um, they all seem to like it. Uh, a couple of my cousins uh, routinely show up on our forums, actually Martin and Kimberly both do. Um, it's not really surprising for me, to be honest. This particular thing obviously is, but no one's really surprised I went into science education as well. Um, Vix86 says, have you considered getting this channel verified to add more legitimacy? I'm not sure what you mean by verified in, this, in that context. I know I haven't got my Twitter account verified yet because that process confuses me. Um, but uh, I don't know, the channel doesn't really need additional legitimacy in my mind. Colin McRae asks, would you think that our consciousness would expand with the... Oh, we just read that one, sorry, the screen blipped. Colin McRae asks, do you think heritable genetic engineering is a potential great filter? I really can't see why. Um, if you're genetically engineering people, I think we had this come up with like machine DNA one time. Let's say that you uh, you build, you know, uh, modifications to people's DNA. That's fine. But what if you start adding to the DNA something that was actually controlling the creation of the robots inside you, either in your own DNA or a second strand of something else that did that? And you could make that hereditary, either like mitochondria or the equivalent of DNA. Um, <clears throat> Um, I don't see how that would be a great filter in itself, though. Um, and uh, also, hello to Launchpad Astronomy. Uh, Varangian Bard asks, do you foresee any large social and psychological problems with people not coming to terms with mortality as a result of life extension technology or the hope that it's just around the corner? Um, you know, I never really see these these big technological disruptions that, that people see. I mean, technology is very disruptive. Uh, we've lived through tons of it. I've never seen it cause the world to melt down the way that people so often seem to expect. We are adaptable. Um, we've been extending our lives for a couple of centuries now in a big way. We live way longer than people used to on average. And that has had a huge effect on us. Uh, I, you know, we can be very cynical about our, our culture at times with some justification. But, you know, if you look at, you know, reports of uh, what various governments were doing, you know, local governments, for instance, uh, a century or two ago versus now, we, or corporations for that matter, or just groups, we are way longer range planners than we used to be. Um, you know, we already deal with things in context of decades, not years. Uh, and when we don't do the long range stuff, it's usually because we know better. You know, you don't bother planning around uh, how your computer software company is going to be operating 20 years from now because that, that field of play changes too fast to make prediction possible. But where we can engage in prediction, we do tend to do some really long forecasting. Uh, and we do tend to just kind of take all this stuff in stride, too, uh, with disruption, of course. But usually, you know, it's it's old news the day after. And we've already been extending life a long time. It's not going to be a miraculous moment where we just cure it and it comes out in the news. Cure for, you know, for longevity found. No more aging. It'll be a gradual process where people get used to it over at least months while it's in experimental trials. Um, probably many years or decades. <clears throat> Moko Kass asks, assuming we had the technology, how many humans could the Earth support when using most of the Earth's resources in artificial gardens? 
Um, that's one of those kind of impossible questions to answer because it depends on what those technologies are. Um, if you have a neo virtually endless source of energy and a way to get rid of heat, then you probably only need a couple tons of matter per person, in which case uh, there's what a billion trillion tons of matter, six billion trillion tons of matter making up the earth. So, you know, uh, say six tons per person, a billion trillion people. Um, but, you know, you have to get rid of the heat. So you have to produce the energy for all of that. And you probably need a lot more than six tons to make all the, you know, resources and growing space that you're going to need for that. But hydroponics aren't really all that massive. So the food thing isn't really an issue. <clears throat> um, Colors99 asks, what species of Earth would take over if humanity were to all be killed off? Probably chimpanzees or orangutans, but I keep my fingers crossed for raccoons. I'm very fond of them. Spaceman05 asks, for a single system of civilization, how would von Neumann probes that set up automated material shipping slower than light be advantageous over taking resources from your home system? Um, I think you mean, why would we ship material back from all those systems as opposed to harvesting it locally? Uh, assuming I'm interpreting that correctly, then it, the, the answer is just, you would always grab them locally first. Although you might keep a lot of your reserves on hand and grab them from elsewhere while you can. Um, the reason why you're bringing resources in from other solar systems is because you want more than your system has. And there's quite a reason, quite a few reasons why that would be the case. Again, the Borch planet being the extreme end of that. Um, all right, we're going to go to another break real quick, and I'm going to see if I can actually successfully mute the audio on the microphone before we do that this time. Hello, everyone. Glad you could make it to Isaac's live stream this evening. Um, while he's outside recuperating for a few minutes, he's asked if I can say a few words, and you'll be getting more words from people just like me over the next few weeks, as you shall see why, hopefully, in this video. Um, my name is Ollie Epsom. I'm a mechanical engineer. Um, I currently live in Germany, but as you can probably tell from the accent, I'm British. Um, I specialize mainly in renewable energy, so wave energy, wind energy, and so forth. Um, currently working in wave energy. In the past, I've built a few wind farms in Scotland. Um, before that, I did some arguably less ethical jobs. So I was an officer in the Royal Navy. I designed nuclear reactors for submarines when I worked at Rolls-Royce. And then I moved over to the aircraft part of Rolls-Royce where I helped design aircraft engines, um, specifically a test engine called EFI, and parts of that program were then incorporated into the 787 and Airbus A350 programs. Um, so there's a chance that parts I've had a, had a hand in designing will be flying you around the world at the moment. I don't know if that gives you comfort, but uh, yeah, <laughs> tough luck either way. Um, in my spare time, I really enjoy uh, sailing and I like uh, bagging Monroes, which is kind of a Scottish thing if you haven't heard of it. Um, it's good fun to do. Uh, you could do something similar anywhere with mountains. And so if you are from the Netherlands, unfortunately you dip out, but there you go. Um, I have a very small YouTube channel of my own, Drawing Board 82, where I mainly talk about the technical aspects of some of the home projects and hobbies that I do. So on there you can find everything from how to build an electric autopilot for a boat uh, or an electric outboard motor, um, to how to rig a boat for self-steering um, under sail, upwind and downwind. Um, you can find out other more mundane tasks such as how to change the oil on a car or the brakes on a bicycle or just some really offbeat stuff like how to tell the traction system of an electric train just by listening to it. So if that sounds like the sort of thing that floats your boat and you like a good cup of tea, then feel free to look at my videos. Just uh, don't get your expectations too high. I, I make them really for fun. 
Um, why am I talking to you here today? Well, um, I'm part of Isaac Arthur's production team, um, and that's why uh, you're going to be hearing more of us. So, um, Isaac Arthur's channel, as you can imagine, takes a lot of work to produce, um, and that's been made a bit easier by a volunteer production team. And we kind of help with graphics, with script editing, with concept development, with number checking, um, and so on and so forth. Um, mostly what I do is go to the brainstorms and try and uh, use my engineering skills as best I can to, to have some sort of positive impact and also edit some of the scripts as well. Um, it's really good fun actually and it's a chance to uh, work with some really talented people who, um, as I say, are, are doing it um, out of the goodness of their heart. And uh, yeah, and uh, it helps uh, helps bring this channel uh, channel alive. Um, so as I said, hopefully you'll be hearing from more people uh, like me in the next few weeks. Um, in the meantime, I would imagine that Isaac has recuperated sufficiently to return to the action. Um, in the event that he hasn't, I'm just going to leave you with this photograph of a Spitfire and a Boeing 787 flying over the Rolls-Royce factory. In okay, and we're back. Um... Question from Cornskid. Oh, by the way, we'll probably be going longer today than uh, normal hour we do. But if we run out of questions or you have questions we don't get to answered, feel free to leave those in the comments below. I read the chat in detail afterwards, but it doesn't let me reply to it at that point. But I do come back to check the comments later on. Um, Cornskid asks, what happens to the economy when the robots do all the work and do we pay them? Um... You'd probably play their owners if they were not sentient, if they were sentient. That's your typical machine rebellion issue. And I think you're either paying them or uh, you've got yourself some problems. K2 Despot asks, do you have any interest in making a video in the future about abstract or eldritch aliens uh, with all kinds of clock tech or intelligence in higher dimensions, etc.? We kind of did that with Sleeping Giants, uh, Foamy Paradox Sleeping Giants. Was that um, last year? I think it was about a year ago. And that is always a tempting topic to return to, but, uh, you know, we always like to incorporate a lot of science fiction in what we do here. Um, but at the same time, the focus is more on the science. And a lot of times in cases like that, while it's great sci-fi, it's often kind of hard to do from a, uh, you know, from a science perspective. Although doing something on maybe like the Mass Effect repos in more detail would be kind of tempting. Uh, Shockwave asks, would it be a good idea to disassemble every star in a galaxy and turn them into maximum mass gas giants without turning them into stars? <clears throat> we have an episode coming up on that. Uh, possibly yes. <laughs> so, wait till March. Um, well, I guess on that question in general, it depends on you know what your timeline is for your civilization. Um, stars are only handy if that's your only best power source. And, and we'll be looking at how you might use black holes instead of stars as your power source. In which case, you almost certainly do that. As the stars themselves, um, you know, they, there are a lot of variables that come into play. But again, we will talk about that more in um, Fleet of Stars and Colonizing Black Holes in late May. Mid-May and late May. Uh, Colors99 asks, would we be more advanced technology... Would we be more advanced? Would we be a more advanced civilization if we continue to develop nuclear technology, assuming we found a way to generate power in the safest way possible... Would nuclear rockets allow much easier colonization? Yeah. Um, I mean, in both respects, yes. Um, I always kind of stay away from the topic of nuclear power, uh, normal fission power, because uh, one, I always mispronounce nuclear. Um, two, it, it seems to cause a lot of controversy for reasons that I always like to stay away from a bit, because 
on the one hand, they are folks who treat it as though it's just evil and wrong and could never be used safely. On the other hand, you do sometimes have advocates who try to act as though they are no dangerous to it at all and they can be used for everything, period. Um, I want to see a lot more research and development on it. I would love to see us convert over to um, you know, the new pebble bed reactors in particular. I would love to see us do almost all electricity from nuclear uh, while developing other things too. Um, but for mainstay power generation here on Earth, I don't think it's ever going to have a huge role or for rocketry leaving the Earth. On the other hand, in space, um, at least until someone comes up with a compact fusion reactor, it is absolutely the key to much better spacecraft. Um, and I think people will be a lot more content with a nuclear rocket being used, uh, you know, away from Earth. Um, and we do have an episode on that. I think it was the fifth one, the Upward Bound series was the nuclear option. But uh, by and large, I think we would benefit greatly as a civilization if we could develop more safe or at least more comfortable uh, ways of, of handling nuclear technology. I would say that we actually have the necessary safety already at this point in time, but people are still fairly uncomfortable with it. Not always without justification. Uh, Valentin Bresso asks, are you planning a video on political systems of the future or subjects like UBI or AI planned economies and policies? Um, I tend to stay away from topics like that. Um, you know, I get enough politics in my day job with the elections. Um, and I think everyone's got their own views. They don't really need me to talk to them too much about that. Plus, it's always hard to dissect topics like that anyway, because people have too much emotion invested to it. Me, me as well, I'm sure. Um, you know, you, you have a topic that you're biased on and that everybody else is biased on. Uh, how do you carefully dissect that? It's one of the reasons why I like the fall future top, topics, because... People don't really have a set feeling on them. In fact, we were just talking about nuclear a moment ago. That's a hard topic to discuss because people have an opinion on that. They really don't want to shift from too much. And so many other people have discussed it, and I really don't feel like taking my time to, to go into those subjects that are so well-trodden. As to political systems in the future, I might be tempted to look at um, some of the various options on the table uh, if I thought I could do that in a reasonably neutral fashion that people just think about on their own which ones are best. But that's such a tricky topic to cover. Um, Astrovels asks, why are current and presumably near-future space diets largely vegetarian in nature? Good question. Um, that's actually got a lot of answers to it and we'll be talking about in that in our synthetic meat episode on July 4th, since we have a Thursday coming up on July 4th. Um, mm, that is one of those other topics people get, uh, kind of set in their ways about. Um, for early space colonization, you avoid meat because a cow is a really hard thing to carry with you into space, especially into a small cramped uh, compartment about the size of a bus, which is usually most of the space missions we have in mind or small-scale bases. Um, and so that's a pragmatic aspect. Um, you also have to worry about a lot of disease issues when you're living that close to your livestock. Um, but uh, in terms of long-range future, whether or not you'd see meat on other plants would come down to basically two factors or other habitats, bigger ones. First is how do people feel about it ethically? If people decide they want to move away from meat, um, then that's what's going to happen. If not, then they'll have it there. And whether or not we get a good synthetic process, either to grow meat in a lab at a, a reasonably viable price or just, you know, alternatives like, uh, you know, whey protein that someone was able to shape into a very uh, meat tasting thing. Um, so I was raised vegetarian. I have a lot of experience with um, uh, meat substitutes. And actually, some of them are quite tasty, but they do not taste at all like uh, the meat they are usually replicating. Um, and uh, it's funny. I actually like soy, bacon, uh, BLTs more than normal BLTs, even though I'm fond of bacon. Um, 
Stephen Moore asks, how accurate is the stealth technology in The Expanse? I've been watching the series and I keep thinking about how you said there is no stealth in space. Um, it always depends on if we're talking about the TV series or the book, sh- book series. And um, they are very similar and both very good, but there are some points of divergence there. And the series talks about it more. Um, stealth in space, we say there's no stealth in space, but I always talk relative. Just because you can detect anything and there's a way to hide, say, a single atom, doesn't mean you can see a single atom uh, a million miles away. Um, you know, if you just have to point your scope that way. So you could hide a ship from a certain distance. But by and large, most stealth systems talked about in books or film are not, not viable without technologies that don't really exist <clears throat> and would violate the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, Will Puzz asks, could vacuum energy, zero point energy, be a thing and, allevi- and alleviate the need for stars for power? Vacuum energy is probably, I mean, it's real enough, at least inside current theory. Um, but the idea is it's kind of a base state to generate power. You have to be able to have, um, not like a a heat engine. I can't get power, uh, from a lukewarm bathtub that I've got one end of my engine in both sides of that tub. You need a temperature differential. We say there's a lot of energy at the base state of matter in the vacuum. Um, you know, how do you tap that? Um, so I won't say you could never do it, but probably not. Um, that said, obviously, anytime you get a power source that's better across the board than another, that's what you start using. Um, and it has to be better across the board for that to be certain. Otherwise, there'd be a case where you would or wouldn't do it. For instance, artificial fusion right, might um, not supply all of our power in the future if we had it, just because it might be easier to uh, to use the sun. You know, a solar panel is a relatively cheap thing to manufacture. So you might use those instead of a fusion reactor near the uh, near the sun, but then out in the outer system you'd use fusion. And even then, it might be a really big and bulky thing. So you might use a fusion reactor to actually power your small ships, or uh, you know, radiothermal isotopes to small you know to power your smartphone because there's no nuclear reactor in there. Uh, Face of sarcasm asks, have you ever thought about? Do- you guys have the most interesting tag names in these things. <laughs> <laughs> Face of Sarcasm asks, have you ever thought about doing a very near future space expansion series? Yes. Um, although it kind of depends on what you mean by very near. As I said, I often don't really enjoy talking about things that are current or very near future technology because so many other people have, have touched on that already. And I kind of like to open the doors up to further ahead. Um, but we probably will be doing a second look, uh, a more detailed look at the moon, Mars, and Venus than we did in the Outward Bound series. Although... I don't know if the moon episodes were actually part of the Outward Bound series or not. Whichever the case, you know, there was so much material we could talk about on those planets that I'd be very happy to look at them in more detail. But generally speaking, even when I'm doing near-term technology episodes, uh, like we got space planes coming up in a month and a half or so, um, you know, you start with what we have right now, what we have on the table for maybe a decade from now. But usually I like to explore the concept, start at the beginning and kind of push forward and see What's the options there? So that one spends a lot of time in the present or the near future, but still talks about how these things might be adapted to, uh, you know, fall ahead in time. Um, G Dexter asks, since civil nuclear power is so closely linked to nuclear weapons development, isn't recommending the expansion of civil nuclear power likely to widespread nuclear weapons proliferation? Possibly. Um, you know, there's all technology is dangerous. How you go about controlling that is um, really dependent on the technology and what people are okay with you doing. Um, and that's obviously a much longer conversation about policy. But, uh, you know, I, I don't like when we say, well, you can't put uh, can't put the genie back in the bottle. Once you open Pandora's box, you know, you're screwed. 
Um, just because you get a dangerous technology does not mean that you always have to pursue that to uh, to some natural conclusion where you either find a way to make it not dangerous or you don't use it. At the same time, though, we do say, you know, let the genie out of the bottle for a reason. Um, any technology you develop is going to have a weaponizable form of it. Uh, that's just kind of how it goes. Any interstellar spaceship is a doomsday device. That's just how that goes. Um, I don't know that we want to shrink away from these things, but that's a possibility. That is a phony paradox we look at sometimes that you either blow yourself up or civilization says this much technology and no further. And again, this week's episode, techno primitivism discusses that option a bit. I think we'll probably go for another 15 minutes or so. And if we don't get to your questions again, feel free to put them down in the comments afterwards. Um, Nicholas Bevins asks, once profitable space company, <clears throat> once profitable space companies arise, do you think NASA, ESA, etc., will shift from space exploration toward space regulation? Um, hmm. I wouldn't really see why NASA or the ESA specifically would do that. They'd certainly be provide a big pool of the people who were consulted uh, by the governments uh, in question to look at that. But um, regulation is done by government uh, legislature, at least in the United States. I, I can't say that's the case everywhere else, but. Um, it's not the responsibility of NASA, for instance, to come up with our policies or to, if you're asking maybe if they would do more of the actual enforcement, like, uh, NASA shifting into more of a policing force for space, um, that's only possibility. Uh, you know, if you're doing a lot of development in space, you do eventually have to have somebody who's handling regulation and enforcement. And if that's the case, you would want to draw from existing bodies that had some experience and infrastructure for doing that. So yeah, I guess that is a possibility. Um, Will Paz asks, with quantum computers and sufficient simulation power to approximate all space exploration needs, would actual space exploration make sense anymore? Well, space exploration never really makes sense um, in, in the way that most people tend to mean it in that Star Trek sense where you go and, and look at planets up close and investigate them. A habitable planet, you want to go and explore that way, but the universe is really homogenous and boring. Um, <laughs> we think about it in this context, so I'd say it's not a lot of interesting things out there, but you, you know, you're not going to send ships to each individual star system to look at them. I mean, we probably would, but that would be, you know, before you get around to colonizing them, basically. Um, as a simulation, it doesn't matter how much simulation power you have compared to how much space you have in the universe, because your simulations are all based off of matter and energy. You need matter and energy to run them, to store them. And the more of that you have, the more simulations you can run, or the longer you can run them, or the better you can run them. And so basically, if you need more matter and energy, you have to leave the immediate area to go find it. And the exception to that would be if you had a clock tech that lets you basically tap um, you know, some other universe for uh, matter and energy. If you, Other than that, though, outside of a clock tech that specifically allows you to infinitely recycle uh, your energy and to pour matter and energy from someplace else, you always have a motivation to go and exploit the galaxy if it's uninhabited um, by other intelligent life. Um, but, um, we talked about this a bit in virtual worlds. The thing that people miss with this is, it's not do you do X or Y. If you have the ability to simulate a person, you know, you've got the ability to run a computer program that anybody can participate in that's got a, uh, a bartender or an inn or an adventure full of characters that are so lifelike that you can't tell them apart from humans, e.g. something that's good enough for us to feel comfortable with as opposed to the natural universe around us, then you have the technology to build a self-replicating machine that can go to other solar systems and bring matter home, or to go colonize the universe for you. 
you had that technology before you had the ability to make fun games that everyone could enjoy that seem like they're full of real people. So you cannot do these big simulations until after you have the technology to colonize the universe. Um, and you have a motivation to do so. So any of these ones that rely on miniaturization or simulation or things like that say, we wouldn't do that because we'd expand inward. No, you do both. You still do both. You're actually better at doing them because you have the technology to do the one. Uh, Matthew asks, if the universe is constantly expanding, would it be possible to create a system to harness the expansion there by creating a perpetual motion machine? Theoretically, you can tap dark energy. Uh, it would help if we understood how it works better, but you have to think about the kind of skills involved um, for machines like that. Uh, the idea being, let's take, uh, we'll, we'll take you know, a big spring with things on both ends of it, and we'll stretch that over a million light years, and one end of the spring will be pulled away by dark energy expansion from the other. Right? And you can now use that to generate power by bringing it back in. Um, that works on paper. Uh, it's a very tiny amount of energy, though. That doesn't mean you couldn't learn how to do it better down the road. Jack River asked, do you think that we could make helium-3 with hydrogen fusion instead of mining on the moon? Um, if you have the ability to make helium-3 via hydrogen fusion, the only reason why you would do that is if you specifically wanted a fuel that was a neutronic. Um, and I can think of some applications to that, in which case you might have it as a byproduct industry of normal hydrogen fusion. Um, but helium-3 is really not in that short of a supply. Um, Especially once you're out in the solar system. And again, if you have hydrogen fusion, you can go mine Saturn or Neptune or Uranus as much as you want. A.H. Glasser asks, would you say your channel has helped to keep you sharp with what you learned in school? Uh, it helps me keep up on my field, I suppose. But, uh, you know, you when you get out of school, it's very easy for people to get in the habit of, of kind of getting, getting behind on their own field. They lose interest in it or maybe it wasn't really something they were all that passionate about toward the end. Um, I never really lost my passion for physics, so I did take a complete year off from really thinking about it in any complex way when I was uh, forced to join the military. Um, but uh, it never really lost its interest for me. And, um, I, you know, obviously I had to stay updated on all of it because I was doing all the stuff that would eventually get me to start the channel one of those days. Um, but I suppose it helped to keep me a little bit sharp on that. And I would give that as a suggestion to people if, if you're, you know, recently graduated from college don't let the stuff rust in your head. Stay sharp on it. Um, you, you know, expand it. Or if, if your field bores you, find another one to do as a hobby. Um, you will only ever benefit from that in so many ways. And it's so easy to say that. No one's going to disagree with that. But um, people tend to find time not to do that. Uh, same for something like exercise or any number of other things that help you to maintain yourself. Ask yourself what you want to do as a person. And you're almost never going to come back with an answer that says um, not you know, learn more, not uh, improve my line. So, um, and that's a philosophy I've usually tried to follow. Um, Lay Sweeney asks, what is the probability of an orbital ring being built within the next century? Within the 21st century? Uh, again, the orbital ring is not really all that complicated in of itself or all that high tech. It's just, it's a very extreme option. So <clears throat> to use a U.S. explanation pioneering example, uh, in 1849, we discovered gold in California. There were already plenty of people going out there, and the Louisiana purchase from about 50 years before that had already been well in play. Those areas got built very slowly up. Uh, we already had the technology for railroads at that point in time, too, and we began to put them into place. Um, you know, the railroad is something you don't build to a village a thousand miles away with nothing along the way except for that village. It's what you build when there are cities there. The orbital ring is not high tech. 
what the Oprah Ring is, is big. It's, it's, you know, why you build skyscrapers. You don't build a skyscraper in a Mars-sized city. You build them in a very big city where the land costs are already kind of high. <laughs> Same thing for an Oprah Ring. Uh, when that happens then is that, you know, basically a few generations at, at most, and maybe just a generation after space travel has gotten to the point that many people, not necessarily the majority, but, you know, no longer just one million, but, you know, thousands if not millions of people go into space every year. That's when you start thinking about an Oprah Ring. Uh, we've got time for a few more questions. Uh, Stephen Moore asks, one of my all-time favorite episodes was Colonizing Titan. That was a fun episode to do too. Is it safe to assume that there are probably more Titan-like moons out there in the universe or even Titan-like planets? Hmm. There actually might not be a ton of Titan-like planets. This is not really all that big, but uh, it tend to be swept into something's orbit, I would think. But uh, of course, it depends on that solar system. And we're still bad at modeling those kind of things. Uh, as to moons like that, oh yeah, I would be surprised if most gas giants didn't sport some of the supersized moons like uh, Titan or the Galilean moons or Triton and a couple of the other ones that are really big. And um, that's just a distance thing and that's a very large distance. It's a very large orbital area that could be a viable planet. Um, you know, the distance between Jupiter and Saturn, the area that's encompassed in those orbits is much larger than the entire inner solar system. So. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say you would find a Titan-like planet, a uh, moon in every system, but uh, it would, they would not be the least bit surprising. And of course, it depends on how broadly would find that. Uh, Theodore asks, would you rather live in a good non-spacefaring empire or an evil spacefaring empire? Oh, false dichotomy question. I would tend to think that to be a good spacefaring empire, you had to be um, a, a good at things in general. Uh, <laughs> you tend to fall apart if you're not... Uh, not administering things well um you know you look at something like uh the federation from blake seven not not star trek the the blake seven one that's very dystopian and you tend to think things like that would tend to fall apart pretty quickly just because it's so hard to actually especially in a non-ftl universe maintain control uh if you're unpopular or you're doing these people don't like or that don't work out well but uh, i would always rather live in a uh, relatively good civilization in terms of morality than uh you know than a bad one and uh, that, to me, maybe takes a little bit of precedence over technology, but I, I, I think that's a false dichotomy that I usually think the more knowledge, the more technology and prosperity you have, um, the more likely you are to be overall good. But that's just a tendency, not an absolute rule. Um, and of course, it's just an opinion. Uh, Tony Amateur asks, what plausible future tech or invention do you see as the most dangerous to humanity? That's probably a good one to finish up on. Um <clears throat> Most dangerous ones would be artificial intelligence. It's got the most promise, but also the most danger. And uh, that, that seems very appropriate there. When we have label-saving devices, it's hard to make a better label-saving device than one that you don't even have to you know, give instruction to because it can just do it itself. And um, that, to me, is always kind of the ultimate dangerous one is the ones that start playing around with the mind. Um, even ones that aren't human-level intelligence. When you're just starting to make things that are fairly intelligent. Um, I mentioned I was reading or listening to Heretics of Dune the other day. They were talking about one of the problems with machines, and in fact, Holbert's opinion is that uh, it doesn't just um, have to worry about how you treat the machines, is that when you have a society that is you know, very controlling of machines, uh, running everything on machines, you might start to treat people like you treat machines. And uh, those kind of ethical concerns are always a very big issue um, with that. And I do see that as the most dangerous technology because I generally I'm more worried about us self-destructing in kind of a moral rot uh, or existential dread than I am about us blowing ourselves up. <laughs>
<laughs> uh, I don't really see Elo as very likely though. Alright, we're going to go ahead and close out there for today. Just going over the schedule again real quick. Uh, this week is our techno primitivism episode on um, on Thursday, which will be our second episode of the Rogue Civilization series. And I am looking for ideas for a third episode on that, because uh, I would like to do a few more discussing those. Uh, first one being space prisons that we did back in January. Then we're going to have the uh, extra episode on uh, next Sunday on Clark Tech Anti-Gravity and Artificial Gravity. And then we got the Future of Pets episode um, next, next Thursday. And then on uh, April 18th, Giant Robots in Power Suits. <laughs> Still can't believe I'm doing that episode. And then Matrioska Wars to finish out April. And um, we have quite a lot more episodes ahead of that. But again, thank you for joining us today. And if I didn't get a chance to get to your question, post it in the comments below when those become available after, done, after the video is done processing. And I'll try to get to them in a couple of hours. Other than that, thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you on Thursday.